with you. And we're going to continue this series on the road to Easter. The road to Easter. And I'm going to talk today about the prayer, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that coming out, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and as he was accustomed, and as his disciples, or his disciples also followed him, only so far though, because when he came to the place, he said to them, you better pray that you enter not into temptation. Jesus knew that they were about to be tested like they'd never been tested before. He knew that they were about to have their cages rattled. So he said, you better pray or you're going to enter into temptation. Now, verse 41, and so he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, about from here to the sound booth, and he knelt down and he began to pray. And here's what he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We all have a Gethsemane, don't we? Every person in this room is going to have a Gethsemane, that is, a time when you're being tugged in different directions. You are going to want to do one thing, and you know that it's God's will for you to do something else. And you're going to have to pray that prayer. Well, Lord, it's, it's surrender time. Not my will, because I've got one, but yours be done. And look, when he was in this struggle, God sent him help. An angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, agonia, the, the Greek word, agonia, he was in intense uh, conflict of soul. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and came to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? And here it comes again. You better watch and pray lest you get tempted. If you want to avoid temptation, getting victory over you, watch and pray. Stay in the word of God. Amen. Father, thank you for your word today. And we pray that it'll speak to our hearts and bring the reality of Easter to us. Help us walk with you that final week and see what you experience. And Lord, make it real to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, this is going to be good. Listen up. You're going to need it. All right. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' execution was only a few hours away. He knew that he didn't have long. And the anticipation of what he was about to go through, which he fully understood, brought him into an incredible place of uh, intense prayer. Hebrews 5, verse 7 tells us about it. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, it says, He offered up prayers, He offered up petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. He said, God, I know that You can save me from death. And He prayed. And so based on what Dr. Luke tells us, being a doctor, Jesus prayed with such intensity and what he was going through was so intense to him. It's hard for us to imagine that he sweated and it was cold out. The time of year it was cool. It was not hot summer. In cool temperature, he sweated. And then it was so intense that he sweated as it were great drops of blood. 
Now, there are some who say, well, uh, Luke was just talking in a simile. He was just making an example. It was like it was blood. But I don't believe that was it at all because Luke was a doctor. I don't think that's what he was saying. I don't think he was saying it was like blood. It literally became blood. I looked it up. There have been cases in which people in a debilitated state of body or great horror of soul have had their sweat tinged with blood. That kind of intensity, that kind of dread, that kind of emotion can do that to you. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus was all man and all God at the same time. He was all God, all man. He was God, man, man, God. Jesus was God wrapped in skin. All God, all man. And as a man, he knew what awaited him in Pilate's court. He knew at what awaited him at the end of that smiter's whip. He knew what awaited him in the fists of those Roman guards. He knew what awaited him on the cross. The worst instrument of torture known to ancient man. He knew because the Psalms had already told him about the cross and Isaiah had already told him about the beating that would render him unrecognizable. He knew. He, Isaiah saw that when we looked at him, we have to turn away from him. That we can't even look at what has happened to him as he headed to that cross. It was too gruesome. Mel Gibson didn't really do it the justice in his book, the Passion, or in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, like it really happened. You could not show what really happened. They wouldn't let it through. Now, several years ago, Phil Donahue, you might remember, if you're old enough to remember him, if you were watching TV in those days, a liberal television talk show host who I tuned out very early on, but he listed the various reasons why he, as a former Catholic, had become disillusioned with Christianity. And he said this on national television, quote, How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow His Son to be murdered on a cross to redeem my sins? That's what Phil Donahue said. So I'm going to answer Phil Donahue today. And many people who have decided, you know, I don't understand. Why would God have to put His Son on an instrument of torture like that cross right there in front of us? And for those of you listening by radio, I've got a big cross set up in the front of the church for all of us to look at today. I want us to look at that cross, and we're going to see why Jesus had to die on the cross and why Jesus dreaded that cross so much. Why did God's Son have to die like that? Why couldn't God, being God, just look down and say, well, you know what? I want everybody redeemed. And so I forgive all of you for all that you've done. And let's just, can't we all just get along? Can't we just l overlook what happened in the garden and, and you walk with me again and talk with me again and fellowship with me again? Why, we don't really need to do anything more than that. Why didn't God just do that? Or why not send an angel? Or why not just use a normal man in some way or another to bring about the redemption of people? Why did it have to be God being born in the womb of a virgin? God wrapping Himself in skin? God living among us? God teaching us? God healing us? And then of all things, God allowing His very creation to hit Him, to pull out His beard, to thrust a crown of thorns on His head, and then to nail Him 
to a torture device and die that way. Why? Well, to understand it, you have to understand some things about God. Let me share with you some facts about God. Listen very carefully to Romans 3, verse 25. Quote, here comes Paul. He says, God presented Christ. Notice that. God presented Christ. God gave us Christ. As a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now that little phrase, I'm going to pull it out of that verse, the sacrifice of atonement. That little phrase translates from a Greek word that means propitiation. Can you all say that with me? Propitiation. Let's try it one more time. When you go to the restaurant today after church, tell the waitress, I learned today about propitiation. And she'll say, what in the world is that? What a great door, because you're about to know. What a t-shirt that would be. I believe in propitiation. Now, propitiation is not understood by very many people. If I were to ask most people in churches today, what, what's propitiation? They really would not be able to define it. So I'm going to give you a very simple definition because it is crucial and, and, and basic to our understanding why Jesus had to die on the cross. Propitiation means to turn away anger by the offering of a gift. To turn away anger by the offering of a gift. That's propitiation. Now, let me, let me just bring it home. If you're married, how many of you are married? All you married folks, raise your hand. All right. I'm going to make this real to at least you. All of you guys know, for instance, that one of the ways to turn a wife's anger into a smile is to practice propitiation. That is, you stop on the way home at a store. You go in and you buy a dozen roses. You're mad. She's mad at you. She's already talked to you on the phone because you didn't do this or didn't, do, didn't empty the trash or you stayed longer than you said you were going to. Whatever the reason, she's not happy. And every guy in here knows if mama ain't happy, boy, they know it, don't they? They know it in this church. If mama ain't happy, the home ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy. You ladies, can I inform you today, you have power. Now, so you go get those roses or you go get that card or whatever it is, box of chocolates, whatever it is, and you walk in and you meekly say, I'm sorry, and you hand her the propitiation. And she can't help it. It's, it's a gift, and it appeases the anger. And then you say with the gift in hand, can you forgive me? And, or I'm sorry. She's, okay, all right, all right. And then she opens up those chocolates, and they're gone in 10 minutes, and, it, and everything's fine, right? Now, That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God. The Bible clearly teaches that God is not just a God of love, but God is a God of holiness. If you're going to understand the God that we worship today, you've got to understand He's not only love, we love talking about His love. We say all the time, God is love. He loves everybody. But we've got to remember that He's just as holy as He is loving. We worship a God of holiness John said God is love. John said God so loved the world. He gave his only son. But why did he have to give his only son? Because he's also holy. And because he is holy, God must judge sin. He cannot not judge sin. And his anger 
must be propitiated. His anger at sin must be appeased. There has to be a gift. There has to be something that happens, a propitiation to turn God's anger away. Because He's holy, He must make sure that justice prevails in His universe. God created a moral universe. Can I tell you, this is not a random universe. God created a moral universe because God is moral. And that's why when you see somebody do something wrong, you know they're going to have consequences. Because God has built into you the understanding that is straight from Him, because He made us in His image, that when something wrong is done, there has to be a payment for it, there has to be a consequence for it, there has to be justice meted out to make the wrong right. Because God is holy, He's got to judge sin. And because God is holy, He's got to be sure that justice prevails in His universe. Now, we, we, we fully get this on an earthly level. Just imagine with me that a man is found guilty of embezzling $6 million from his employer. And imagine that just before sentencing, he's been tried, found guilty. Now he's about to be sentenced. He's standing in front of the judge. Imagine with me that if he said to the judge, Judge, you know what? I know I embezzled $6 million and a whole lot of people were hurt, but you don't know how sorry I am. I am so sorry that I embezzled that money. Have mercy on me, judge. And what if that judge said, well, you know what? I really believe your apology is sincere. I receive your apology. I'm a loving judge. Go ahead and walk out the door. You're forgiven. That's it. If it was you he embezzled from, you'd be yelling in the courtroom. He's got to pay for his crime. This is not just. And you would be right. Forgiveness is one thing, but consequences are another. Taking it a step further. Suppose the man had been convicted of rape or murder and then was set free with no punishment only because he apologized. It would not fly. It wouldn't fly with anybody. Why? Because we know that wrong has consequences. And that when wrong is done to somebody else, there should be justice meted out on their behalf. We know this. This is why the Bible tells us God must judge sin. And He must be sure that justice ultimately prevails in His universe. That's why the Bible tells us, listen to this, Romans 1 verse 18. God's anger is being revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God Himself made it plain. Now catch what the Bible's saying. Right now, God's anger is being poured out on this world. He is judging and punishing and chastening people for sin. The sad thing is that most of the time, those that are being chastened by God or judged by God have no idea that's what's happening to them, but they are. It says the wrath of God abides on them. Jesus said, if you believe in me, your condemnation is past. But if you do not believe on me, you are under condemnation right now, and the wrath of God is abiding on you. Can we understand the way the world is, church? That you are either under the blood and forgiven, or you are under, not under the blood, and the wrath of God is abiding on your life. Whether or not you like it, that's what the Bible says. 
The psalmist wrote, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So God's wrath is being poured out in judgment against the sin and wickedness of people who refuse to turn to Him, and it's happening every day. And this is why ultimate judgment of the entire Christ-rejecting world is soon going to come. There is no way this world is not going to be judged. Ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever a day to get saved, it's now. If there was ever a day to get under the blood of Jesus, it's now. The world makes fun of judgment. The world mocks judgment. The world says, oh, there, he, there goes one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers talking about judgment. The Proverbs tell us that the wicked man mocks judgment, mocks the whole idea of judgment. But the bottom line is that God is holy and God is love and God, because of His holiness, must judge sin. Now, back to the fall when Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the world, here was the deal. Without propitiation, a gift that appeased His wrath, the hope of mankind ever avoiding judgment and re-entering relationship with God was absolutely impossible. Now, man had a problem, and that's all of us. We all had a problem after the fall. Here's the problem. After the fall, there was not a thing in the world we could do to appease God, to offer a propitiation that was sufficient for him. You remember old Cain? Cain and Abel came to make an offering to God. The first family had been taught. If you're going to appease God, if you're going to come into God's presence, it's got to be by way of blood. So Abel offered up a blood sacrifice. But Cain apparently thought God was a vegetarian because he brought God a full vegetable offering. It wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's method. It was not God's order. It was not God's access the way that God had taught them to access him. So he made this beautiful vegetable offering. And what did God say? I can't receive it because it is not the way I told you to come to me. That does not appease my wrath. It does not appease. It does not join you, Cain, to me again. It's got to be by way of blood or it is no way at all. He was bringing his best idea. He was bringing his best effort, but they weren't good enough. See, you and I, by ourselves, in our own strength, we have no way that we can get back to God. There is a great chasm between us and God, and our best idea cannot get us there. Isaiah described it this way. All of us have been sinful, and even our best actions are filthy through and through. The King James says, your righteousness, says God, is to me as filthy rags. Your best effort isn't going to cut it. You can't come into my presence based on your best idea. It's got to be my way or the highway. Now, we don't like to hear that in our generation. We like to say, well, I'll get to God any old way I want to. We're being taught by some religious leaders in the world that it doesn't really matter which way you go, that God receives everybody in any way that they come. And that is a bald-faced lie. Because as Cain had to do it God's way, we must do it God's way. And there is only one way, the way, the truth, the life. And Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but through me. That's it. Our problem is 
We couldn't get to him. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us going his own way. Paul told the truth about human nature. He said, there is no one who is righteous, no one who is wise, no one who worships God. All have turned away from God. They have all gone wrong. No one does what is right. No, not even one. You hear all those negatives? No one, no one, all, all, no one, not even one. There wasn't one person that came up with the right idea or a sufficient way to get back to God. So after the fall, this was man's problem. How to get rid of our sin and get back into relationship with God. You know why that's so important? Because we're hardwired to walk with Him. We're made to be filled with His Spirit. We're made to walk in the beauty of holiness. We're made to walk with Him and to talk with Him and to know that we are His own. We're made to get up and say, Good morning, God. And at night, Good night, God. And I love you, Lord, all throughout the day. We're made to be in unbroken relationship with Him. We're made for that. Cutting us off from God is like pulling a fish out of the water or a bird out of the sky. We're made to walk with God. I love walking with God. I love the presence of His Spirit. But unless we can come back to Him in the way that He lays out, and unless His anger is appeased, there is no way. And that's where the cross comes in. Because here was God's dilemma. Somewhere, somehow, there has got to be a place where grace and wrath can meet. Where grace and wrath can come together and both be satisfied. And that happened at that old rugged cross that you're looking at right up here. Can I tell you why Jesus had to die? He had to die because on the cross, the love of God manifested by grace was here. Whosoever will, let him come, and I will forgive you. And here is where the wrath fell. Jesus stood in our shoes and bore the wrath of God for you and for me. I told the first service, there's times when English fails, when words fail. I'm trying to get over something today that matters so much that we understand what really happened at the cross. At the cross, Jesus hanging there, he stepped into our shoes. What was coming our way? A godless eternity, the judgment of God, an everlasting hell, an everlasting separation, hopelessness, we could not save ourselves, desperation, we didn't know what to do. And so here came the wrath of God, and Jesus stood in our shoes on that cross. And ladies and gentlemen, the wrath of God hit this cross. And every wrong thing, every wrong word, every diabolical action, every grieving thing, every nasty thing, dirty thing, sinful thing that we ever did that brought us under the judgment and wrath of God, Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, the judgment for it fell on Him. And He was blamed for it. He was judged for it. He took it. He took it in our place so that we would never have to. Now, I told an illustration a couple of weeks ago. I didn't tell the first service a couple of weeks ago, so I told them again today, but it was so good, I'm going to tell you again today. I'm going to repeat myself, but there's no better way to show it. 
there was a pioneer family going to California. In the days of the pioneers, go, go west, young man, go west. And they were going west. They had a stagecoach. They had cattle. They had their kids. They had their animals. They had all of this. And they're going. And suddenly they see something struck fear in their heart. A furl of smoke climbing to the sky. Say, oh, no, it's a prairie fire. In those days, a prairie fire was like grease lightning. It spread fast. And if you were in the path of it, you died. There was no out. You were surrounded by the fire. What will we do? What will we do? What will we do? They panicked. Somebody that was with them said, here's what you do. The wind is blowing your way. You turn behind you and you light the grass behind you on fire. You light it on fire. Well, why are we going to do that? Just do it. Do it. And they did it. And it began to burn behind them. And it burned and it took off behind them. And before long, there was this huge swath of black ashes, smoke curling up to the air. Everything had been burned. Then that person said, now stand where the fire fell. Because where it fell once, it can't come again. And so they stood where the fire had burned. And they watched this prairie fire go all around them, but it never touched them because they were standing where it had already burned. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, the fire of wrath fell right here. Right here. And we see the wrath of God coming, the judgment of God coming. It's coming on this world. So people say, what can I do? What can I do? Don't hug a tree. Don't become a Buddhist. That won't do it. You've got to run where the fire has already fallen. And right here is where it fell. And it's the only place in the world where you can avoid the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross took the wrath that every one of us should have taken. Isaiah said he endured the suffering that should have been ours, the pain that we should have borne because of our sins. He was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And what did the Lord do? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he took the wrath. He took the blame. He took the rap so that we would not have to. Thank God for that propitiation. Can you say with me, thank God for that propitiation? But Jesus didn't stop there. Not only did he stand in our shoes and take the wrath for us, but Jesus stood in our shoes so we could stand in his. And that's even better. He stood in our shoes so we can stand in his. Well, what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? Well, he didn't stop with just forgiving you. But the Bible says Christ was without sin. But for our sake, God made him share our sin so that in union with him, we might share the righteousness of God. That is, not only did he take the wrath, but then he stood in our shoes and said, now I'm going to stand in your shoes so that when this is all done and over with and the Holy Spirit has fallen and the church has been birthed, you can stand in my shoes. Well, what did that mean? Jesus never sinned. Do you know that Mother Mary never had to say, get over here, you're getting a spanking. Isn't that impossible to understand? But it's true. Jesus never had to say, oh God, forgive me, I have sinned. Forgive me. Not once. Not once did a shadow ever cross between Jesus and the Father. He never sinned. He never did. 
And what I want you to understand today is when you came to him and the wrath fell and you avoided the wrath and God forgave you, God then took your sin, put it on Jesus, and then took Jesus' righteousness and put it on you. So now when he looks at you and me, he doesn't see what we see. He sees somebody just like Jesus. He has imputed his righteousness to you. I love to say it, that God puts on sunglasses when he looks at you and me. S-O-N glasses. Now, I don't have red ones, but I do have some brown ones. I'm going to show you what God does. Before you're sinned, he's looking at you, or before you're saved, he's looking at you going, oh boy, they are in sin, dying in their iniquity. If they don't come to Christ, if they don't come to my son, they're going to die and perish forever. I hope they're, I'm pulling for them. I'm convicting them. I'm drawing them. And then you say, Jesus, forgive me. I am sorry. Forgive my sin. And I accept Christ. I believe he died for me. When you do that, God puts on sunglasses. I haven't seen these in a mirror. Is it bad? These aren't mine. But just imagine they're red. See, when I look at you, I can only see you through the brown lens. That's all that I can see. But what God has on is red ones. So that when he looks at you, he says, righteous, 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 righteous. He sees a lot of Jesuses walking around. He said, well, Pastor Jeff, I'm full of faults. I'm full of this and that. Ah, but he has imputed Jesus' righteousness to you so that this is all that he sees. Well, there goes little Jesus. There goes little Jesus. There goes little Jesus. They are forgiven. They are righteous 100% because I have forgiven them and I have declared them righteous by faith. That's why I love that old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood. It's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. Righteous, 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 righteous. Ready? Saint, 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 saint. And finally at the cross, Jesus took your hand and he placed it in God's hand. He stepped in your shoes and took the wrath. He stepped in your shoes so you could step in his. And then he took your hand on this cross and he placed it in God's hand. That's why the cross is so perfect for what he did because you got the vertical is longer than the horizontal. And the vertical, everything I've named to you today is vertical. He took the wrath that was coming down on you, and it came down on Jesus. He put the righteousness of Jesus from heaven onto you. And now he reconciled you to God. Reconciled means that two people who have been at enmity with each other, at war with each other, separated from each other, hostile towards each other, and he brings them together in a peace relationship. The war is over. The antipathy is over. The anger is over. The hostility is over. The distance is over. The alienation is over. 
He has brought two that were hostile back together. Isn't this good news for married folks who are hostile right now towards each other? Can I tell you, the greatest reconciler in the world is Lord God Almighty. He has given us a ministry of reconciliation. What about friends who have fallen out with friends? Reconciliation is a beautiful word. Reconciliation heals. Reconciliation brings back together what never would have come back together had there not been propitiation. So now on the cross, He brought us back together with God. And now I can wake up in the morning and say, Good morning, Lord. He says, Good morning, Jeff. I say, Lord, I'm so excited to walk with you today. I'm excited to be with you today. How's it going, Lord? You shouldn't ask me that. You know it's always going perfect. How's it going with you, Jeff? Well, I've got this on my mind. and that. Tell me about it. And we go out on the patio together. I read my Bible, read my commentary, fellowship with Him. I get really, really close with Him. I fellowship with the Holy Spirit. It is food and water and life to my soul. Then I can go out and tackle any lion because He walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am His own. So can you stand together with me today? And let's, let's say it together. He stood in my shoes and took my wrath. He stood in my shoes so I could stand in His. And He put my hand in God's hand. Can we give Him a hand of praise for that today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Why don't you bow with me for just a moment of prayer. And I'm going to ask you a question straight up. If you can say, Pastor Jeff, you know, I don't know that I've ever run to the cross where the fire has already burned and allowed that cross to shield me from judgment and I don't know that I've ever allowed Jesus to give me his righteousness I don't know if I'm if my soul is right with God you can know today you can know before you walk out this door and you should and I want to give you that opportunity and maybe you've walked with him but you've distanced yourself from him there's come some alienation but you know very good and well God's knocking on the door of your heart. He loves you too much to let you drift. And He's calling you home, calling you back. Wants to have peace with you today. He wants that reconciliation to happen more than you do. And I want to ask you today, if you can say, Pastor, I'm in one of those two categories and I will let you pray with me. Would you raise your hand right where you are and say, I need the Lord. I need to come back. I need to get it right. Raise it high where I can see you. And I want to pray with you today in Jesus' name. God bless you. I see you. Anyone else? Raise them high. God bless you. I want to pray with you today. What I'm going to do, what I did in the first service, as soon as we dismiss, I'm going to stand right down here and I want you to come up and I prayed with several people after the first service, and I want to do it again today. I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to wait for you. And we're going to pray, and we're going to get right with the Lord. 
In the meantime, before we close out, I want you to get someone in your mind. Somebody you know needs the wrath turned away. Somebody you know needs the righteousness of Christ. Somebody you know needs reconciliation with God. Somebody told you you're contagious to tell somebody else. You're contagious with a good thing. And I want us to take a moment as we head towards Easter. And I want us to pray for that person. And I want us to ask God to make a way for us to invite that person. People will come to church on Easter when they won't come any other time. So can we just get that? It's a child. It's a parent. It's a co-worker. It's a neighbor. It might even be a former enemy. But you need to invite them. Can we do it today? Take a moment and pray. And say, Lord, I pray for this person and I name them.